this episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW LP Brattleboro, your community radio station, as well as BCTV. I am your host, Olga Peters, and I have on the show with me today regular contributor Emily Kornheiser. Hey, Emily. Hi, Olga. And Commissioner of the Department of Financial Regulation, Mike Pichek. Hey, Mike. Hi, Olga. How are you? (laughs) Good. So glad to have both of you here because this is really a good time to talk about how things in Montpelier are shaking out for Wyndham County. And for those who don't know, Mike and his department, or maybe I should say Michael or Commissioner or (laughs) either any any (laughs) any of them works. His department has been gathering a lot of the data needed to model and forecast how COVID is playing out in our communities and has been integral to the kind of the reopening process that the governor is announcing day by day at his press conferences. So, hey, Mike, thanks for making the time to be here. And yeah, my let, pleasure. let's talk about, as Emily put it so beautifully before the show, what are some of the long-term plans for reopening and the dynamics as we open our society about COVID and folks who are having a hard time adjusting as we reopen or want to reopen faster? Yeah. Um, so Yeah, please go with that, Mike. <laughs> so, you know, it's a great question because it, it just gets right at the heart of the challenge here. I mean, the governor has said, and I think he's right, that in some ways it was easier to close everything down than it is to reopen, because when you're closing it down, you're pretty much just thinking about the health policy aspect, the health consequences. Um, And when you're talking about reopening, you're certainly talking about those health consequences as well. Uh, But you're balancing that against, um, you know, the economic consequences and even the non I'd call it the non-COVID-related health consequences. So the longer that we remain in shutdown, um, the more people are putting off routine visits to their doctor, the more people are delaying uh, what would be routine medical procedures that might might become more complicated over time. And even the mental health. I mean, this is Mental Health Awareness Month, and, and you think of people not having that personal, intimate sort of relationship with their friends and their family in ways that they usually do, and particularly in times of great stress. I mean, the time when you need it the most, we all have to be distant and isolated. So all of and those things- really- also the people who are in situation, who are trapped in situations um, that are terrible for their mental health, who can't get out of it right now, who don't have those extra supports. So, you know, domestic Absolutely. violence, um, mm-hmm. family violence is, yeah. And Lots of health of- consequences of us staying trapped in our houses. You can think of, of, of children that, you know, school was a refuge for them and now, you know, they're trapped at home. Um, you, you know, so it really has really, you know, it's not just economy versus health. I mean, it's sort of economy uh, and health versus the COVID-19 crisis, right? I mean, it's just sort of this unique balancing act. So I think it's, it's quite clear that the, the governor's policy has been to take um, at the appropriate time, the first the first thing we wanted to make sure is that we had the virus under control in Vermont. We didn't want to act too quickly to start reopening the state before the virus was contained and on a good trajectory. You know, the White House put out guidance that said um, states should see like a 14-day decline in new cases or a 14-day decline in the percent of positive cases. In Vermont, we've really been seeing trends down for almost 30 days. So we're well beyond sort of the federal guidelines that have come out. We think that we're very well positioned compared to the rest of the country to reopen. 
The one um, concern really that's somewhat unique to us because of our small geography in New England in the Northeast is the fact that although we're doing so well, some of our neighbors are not doing as well. Um, you look at New Hampshire, particularly Southern New Hampshire, they are continuing to see a, a lot of cases. They had, I think over hundred cases today reported. Uh, you look at Massachusetts and you look at downstate New York, but even in the Albany area as well, um, you know, they're just not faring as well as Vermont. So you do worry about sort of the reintroduction of the virus uh, into our state, both in the short and long term. So that's something that we have to keep an eye on. But in, in terms of reopening, we certainly have met these metrics and these markers. And then the question is, how do you do it uh, strategically and slowly? And um, one of the guiding principles has really been to take small steps. As the governor says, turn the dial you know, ever so slightly um, because we want to have time to respond uh, or slow down uh, if the numbers change and the data changes. Um, so just to give you a sense of how complex or maybe complicated this is, you know, you're probably familiar with the fact that, you know, if any, if any of us on, on the video were to get COVID-19 today or be exposed to it, we likely wouldn't have a confirmed test telling us that we have COVID until 14 days from now. We would have a period where we didn't have any symptoms as the onset. We'd have a period of time where we started not feeling so well. Uh, we'd have a period of time where we started feeling worse, assuming that we were, assuming that we were not asymptomatic. And by the time we went to the doctor or the hospital and the two or three days it takes to get the test back, you know, that's 14 days later. So the thing that you don't want to have happen um, is to get this get away from you quickly because we don't, we won't know all of our markers are not sort of markers that we will know tomorrow. It's they're markers that we're going to know two weeks from now. So we can't let it get away from us in the interim uh, before sort of our first warning flags come up and tell us, Hey, this is sort of a, uh, a train rolling out of control. Uh, you need to really do it in slow measured steps. So when those 14 days have passed, you can take a look at the data and say, we had negligible impacts or we had slight impacts, but those are manageable. Um, and then again, when you're talking about reopening, ultimately the thing we're concerned about is making sure people have hospital resources that they need, uh, whether those are hospital beds or ICU beds. And again, there's a delay there. So it takes us 14 days to get our test result back. Um, but you can tack on an additional seven days until we might need hospital care if we're going to need hospital care. So that altogether, that's a 21 day delay between when transmission would happen and when someone might need a critical care bed. So can that's I ask why, you yeah. Two questions about that. Yeah, um, of course. One is I'm really curious about the skill set that you and your department brings to this modeling exercise because you're not the Department of Health, you're the Department of Financial Regulation. And yet you're speaking about this with like a lot of sort of certainty authority and I, you know, I trust what you're saying. Um, <laughs> and so I'm, I'd love to hear more about sort of the parallels between the kind of skills that you all have and that you've brought to this work and then, um, yeah. Start there. Yeah, for sure. I'd be happy to. So, you know, if you think about what we do at the department, you know, we really are, are protecting consumers. And how do we protect the consumers? We are ensuring that the companies are financially solvent. Um, we only do that work of financial solvency by projecting out, you know, their financial, uh, uh, you know, returns and their financial impacts. So sort of that financial modeling. Uh, but we also have to model out, you know, sort of this actuarial modeling. So if you're a life insurance company, and you're making promises today that you're going to pay someone um, on a policy maybe 50 years from now, you know, we have to sort of do that modeling both on the financial side and also on the life and health side 
to determine whether policies are appropriately priced, whether the company has appropriate reserves, whether they're you know in a strong position to make good on those promises. So you know I, I've been impressed by our team here at the department because they have um, you know they're not we're not epidemiologists you know we don't have that background or that skill set, but they've been able to adapt quite quickly with their sort of actuarial mindset and their financial mindset to the world of health. And um, of course, we also have to rely on experts as well. We are working with four, primarily four outside experts uh, outside of the state of Vermont um, that are experts in infectious disease and modeling. Um, so they really help fill in the blanks for us when it comes to all things epidemiological and, and medical and health. So that's a critical component as well. Thanks. And then when I, um, these small steps, which make, it makes a lot of sense to me that you would take a small step, um, open the door a little bit, um, and then, you know, wait 15 days to see the effects and then make another decision. And, um, and I'm comfortable with that. And then I also see a lot of people, um, information is flowing very strangely right now. That's um, true. There's so much of it. <laughs> um, so much of it and finding trusted sources seems to be um, both easier and harder for people and uncertainty and fear are, you know, incredibly heightened. And so I think um, trust is more complicated than, you know, any other time. And so I worry and I'm seeing already that these small steps and the particular ways that they're being communicated either in the initial press conference um, in sort of political speak or the way those then echo out um, causes some confusion. Yeah. So like what actually, you know, this next step, like, okay, golf courses, that's really clear. Um, but beyond golf courses, and I know that, you know, um, our auditor is like super psyched that golf courses are reopening, <laughs> a lot of other people who are too. But like beyond that, what's the difference between what we're being sort of, um, what's now available to us socially around this idea, like we're allowed to congregate, but we're still wearing masks. Are we still wearing masks? We're still staying six feet apart. How is that even different from what we were doing before? Um, so I think the, like what to actually do is still confusing to people. Yeah, and I think that's totally understandable because um, there are, you know, when you do small steps and you try to have broad-based policies, there are always um, examples that sort of don't make sense for the policy, right? You know, I can be safe in this example and that doesn't fit the policy. Why don't we have that exemption, you know, and you can go on from there. So it, it does become complicated. And I, I totally appreciate that from, from like every Vermonter's perspective, because I appreciate that as well. Um, how does it really, you know, how does it really change and how should people be thinking about, you know, these requirements? I think the broadest picture people should anticipate, you know, the the protocols around around mask wearing, uh, protocols around physical distancing, not not necessarily all being in our homes, but even when we're together um, and in public places to have physical distance between us, you know, that sh people should expect that that those kind of protocols will stay in place for some time, regardless of what the specific rules are around whether you can go into a, a, a retail store or whether you can get your hair cut. So um, those are examples of things that are likely to be here for the long term. Let's just call the long term the next few months. Um, similarly, um, hygiene around you know 
uh, washing your hands and not touching your eyes and your face and, and, and your nose and such um, are going to be good practice forever. Uh, but they're particularly going to be good practice, you know, for the next, um, again, long term, next few months. So those are big picture things that like people are going to be expected to continue to do, whether they are, again, going to the grocery store, going back to their workplace where there's a lot of people in their workplace um, or whether they're, you know, if they can't socially distance themselves when they're out for a walk. Usually in Vermont, we don't have a problem with that, obviously. Um, but uh, people should be mindful of that. When it comes to um, other big things that will likely be restricted, at least in the medium term, you know, big gatherings, you know, gatherings that we're all used to in the summertime, you know, things like, um, I mean, just even the farmer's markets, I mean, they're they're open or they're open in a different way, but they're not the farmer's markets that we all think of in Brattleboro uh, or elsewhere. Um, graduations is, a, is one, you know, uh, that's going to be tough. Uh, you know, that's going to be almost impossible to have a graduation where a lot of people, what, even if you're outside, to have that many people together in a, in a, um, in a single space. Uh, similarly, all the festivals that we have over the summer, um, whether that's you know, the Brewers Festival or whether it is, um, you know, all of the fairs that we have across Vermont, those things are going to be really challenging, those large group events, um, even as we reopen, because, you know, that's just an opportunity for a lot of people from a lot of different areas across the region or across the state to come into contact with each other um, while the virus is still present in our community. And we don't have a treatment and we don't have a vaccine. And so you're um, still thinking about that, those sort of cross community vectors when you think of those. Yeah, exactly vectors. right. Okay. Because it can, you know, part of the issue is you can get, you have us that are, that you have folks that are symptomatic, but then we don't even know how many people are asymptomatic, but we do know that those folks that are asymptomatic can, can you know, shed the virus to other people. Mm-hmm. So uh, again, when you have a lot of people coming together and then going out to a lot of other different, you know, coming together, then going out, whether that's through travel, whether that's through fairs, whether that's mm-hmm. through weddings or, or, um, or uh, graduations, it just causes concern because it can sort of light a fire in one place and then spread it like wildfire to many different places. And then, you know, all of a sudden, the, the ramped up testing that we're planning to do, the contact tracing that we're planning to do, won't be able to control, you know, the, and contain the virus um, in, in and over the summer. And that's really the goal is to continue to have these small reopenings while increasing testing, increasing contact tracing, continuing to do um, sort of these policies that reduce the transmission or the likelihood of transmission Mm -hmm. so that we can get back to a more normal state, not definitely not normal because we just talked about things that will be restrictions for a while, but a more normal state while maintaining containment of the virus. So it's, again, it's a tricky balance. um, And, and, uh, and I think it'll, it'll become all of these rules will become clearer once we get to a place basically where retail, where essential business, non-essential businesses can open again. Basically people can go back to work. People can go back to uh, shopping at retail, getting haircuts, maybe differently. Maybe the, the retail has to be done differently and you get your haircut in a different way. Uh, You've mentioned haircuts of, a number of times and I know our listeners I think it's because I need know, one. are you about to announce that haircuts <laughs> are going to be allowed again soon? <laughs> no, it's just that it's just I need one so badly. I keep okay. <laughs> so we don't have a definite date on the haircut. Shucks. But haircuts is one where you think, you know, haircuts and dentists. It's a really hard one. Yeah, they're just close contact. and Very close and contact, yeah. So you just, those are ones that come to mind when you think okay. of this sort of, you know, non-essential, but, yeah. you know. 
So, uh, so, so those are, um, you know, I think again, once more things are open, once there are less sort of restrictions and, and protocols that are very specific, I think it'll become easier for people to understand the new reality uh, for a little while here. Um, but again, I think you can think of those broad-based items that are going to remain the the um, the mask wearing and 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 such, and, and washing your hands with frequency and. And, and being physically, you know, six feet apart from from folks when you're in a park or when you're at a, a movie theater or something like that. So challenging, but um, certainly uh, Vermonters have shown a ability and a resiliency to be able to do this for the last 10 weeks or so. Let's talk quickly, if you don't mind, about some of these protocols, because I seem to remember it was either last week or the week before in the conversation with the governor at one of his press conferences, Someone had had called something a requirement, and I don't remember what it was, but the governor says like, oh, no, no, that was not a requirement. That was a, a restriction or a, a suggestion or something like that. Um, and I think that is adding to some of people's confusion, too. They're like, am I required by law to stand six yeah. feet apart or required by law to wear a mask or is this my own free will? Um, could you just kind of parse that out a little bit for us? Yeah, for sure. And I, I, if I remember correctly, the question was about sort of closing businesses, maybe. And I think the governor might have said, "I didn't close any businesses" or something along those lines. And That's I think familiar, what yeah. I think what he was getting at was that you know he he didn't say he didn't mandate you have to close, but he mandated you can't do business in the same way. And for some businesses, that meant they had to close. I mean, for barbers and dentists and other things, they couldn't. They couldn't do their work in a different way that complied with physical distancing guidelines. For others one, like retail, oh, go ahead, sorry. Right. One thing I really appreciate about as things have been reopened, the guidance from VOSHA has gotten so much clearer and more articulate. And I think that brings a lot of comfort to workers who are really confused about where their rights were and where their expectations should be of their employers. And so that's that added layer of clarity in this sort of more uncertain time as we reopen. I think has been really powerful. Yeah, it's very, it's important. It's a critical piece and, and employers are supposed to have their own plan about how are they gonna mm -hmm. follow these requirements and how are they gonna keep their employees safe and employees should be asking for those if they wanna see them because that's a that's a piece of this as well as employers might wanna go back to work or they might have some, they might have some anxiety themselves about going back to work and employees might be also at the same time anxious to go back to work but also having some extreme um, concern about going back to work, particularly if they're in an age category that puts them at higher risk, mm -hmm. and particularly if they have an underlying condition, right? Um, so uh, all the more so um, that those folks, unfortunately, are really in this bind about life and health, uh, life and death, and sort of economic and, 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 uh, and health choices. So, um, you know, it's good. We need to do everything we can to make sure the workplaces are safe, uh, when um, they open up and and that's both the employer, you know, having a plan, but it's also all of us who are going to go to a retail location, go to the grocery store um, or other places to make sure we're wearing masks and complying with those kind of recommendations because, um, you know, we need we need to do our part to help keep those folks that are on the front line safe as well. That's something else that I think we're, Olga, do you want to? I just want to quickly, before we forget, to remind people uh, Mike, mask wearing and standing six dis, uh, feet apart, is it a requirement or a recommendation? Oh, yeah. So it's a good question. 
So the governor has not mandated mask wearing. There are states that have uh, New York and Massachusetts have mandated it. Uh, they have they have they are recommendations. And uh, similarly with physical distancing, you know, recommendations as well. Um, I think uh, I think that largely I think that largely takes care of the problem. I think likely if we mandated it, the same small percentage of people that are not wearing masks now or are not being physically distant would I don't know if that would change their minds in all honesty. Uh, so I think you probably get the same effect by this approach as you would a mandate. Um, and I guess the one difference to your point is enforcement. What does that mean on, on the enforcement side? Mm -hmm. And I think practically it'd be pretty difficult to envision a scenario where we're, where we're asking the state police or local police departments to issue citations or, or things even more severe for people that aren't wearing masks in public. And, and, and again, I mean, you could be, you know, we, you, all of us could be taking a hike in the woods and we don't really need to be wearing a mask. But again, if we're going into the Bradbrook co-op, we all should be wearing a mask. So there's even some, you know, room for discrep, you know, some room for, you know, you could be walking down the sidewalk and turning left and going on a hike or walking down the sidewalk and turning right and going to the co-op. So you don't, a police office, you know, it's hard to enforce it. And, and that's why it kind of comes down to some level of self-policing and common sense. So Great, towards self-policing um, and the Brattleboro Co-op and all of that, um, I, I don't think, um, I'm uncomfortable with the idea of making this a legal mandate. Yeah. And, and I think the degree of uncertainty that comes from a recommendation um, creates an environment particularly in our special corner of Vermont, but I think probably in a lot of other corners of Vermont, um, where you know folks who have uncertainty or fear or discomfort or cognitive dissonance or whatever we want to call it, um, mm -hmm. one sort of go-to emotional state from that is righteousness, right? And um, right. righteousness and fear. And so what we see, what might have once been sort of tone policing is now um, physical policing around people wearing masks. There was an article in Seven Days that I did not read, I just read the headline. I will own that, um, although I also <laughs> just read the headline. No, but, no, I read um, the whole thing. You read the article? Okay, sorry, last time we talked to you. No. <laughs> um, about, you know, people sort of calling in to make reports. Oh, right. But yeah. other people's behavior. And I'm seeing a lot of sort of that happening on social media, you know, does the, is this business doing well enough? Are the customers in this um, establishment being sort of good citizens or good community members. I see some people saying like, I wear a mask because I care about you. And what I get concerned about in that mental frame, which is very easy to fall into, um, very easy to be in, and it's sort of an, those social norms are what tie us together generally, um, is that for some members of our community, they like the mental flexibility to wear, to pay attention to what's going on, to adapt um, that quickly to get a mask, all of it is just like not available on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah. And I want to I want to find a way that we can navigate this new normal um, with people feeling clear about expectations while still everyone feeling sort of safe and open in their communities with each other. And I don't I don't know what the appropriate policies are to achieve that. Yeah, it's it's hard because what you're when you're describing the scenario that you're talking about, I think of you know, maybe, you know, I think about how quickly all of this has changed. I'll just put it that mm -hmm. way. Um, I think about mid to late March when 
we were doing, you know, the, the governor is doing a three day a week press conference and I only participate once a week, but I remember um, basically between one Friday and then the next Monday thinking, boy, the governor's going to wear a mask. And he hadn't, we hadn't decided on wearing masks yet, but I just, I think to myself, boy, we're all going to, we're all going to wear a mask up there. That's going to look, that's going to look interesting. Like that's going to be kind of weird. Like how's that going to play? And then I think that Friday night, I saw the governor of Colorado wearing a mask at his press conference. And then for me, it changed immediately seeing one person, one leader step mm -hmm. up and do that. It was like, by, by Monday, we would have looked silly not wearing masks or whatever the timeline was. So that's just one example of how quickly like our, our sort of our framework can shift. But, every, but to your point, not everybody is on that same timeline and mm -hmm. they might not be as um, keyed in to um, everything that's going on. Even the people that feel self-righteous might have some level of ignorance going on as well about everyone's personal situation. Some people mm -hmm. uh, have um, conditions where they can't, breathing conditions, they can't wear a mask. It's not sort of, it's not sort of something that, that, that is um, safe or healthy for them to do. So I think we all, you know, it's a tough balance, but we have to sort of try not to judge and try to put ourselves in the other person's shoes and try to, like we always do, it's always good practice to try to look for the best in the person and think that they have the best intentions before we assume the worst in them and assume that they have the worst intentions. And really, you know, take care of ourselves and our own. Our yeah, own for responsibility sure. for ourselves. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I That's do, I have a lot of compassion for the uncertainty that leaves people and leads people towards that righteousness too. Um, Absolutely. And then sort of there's the concurrent uncertainty that leads people to say, you know, who cares? Like, I have no idea. I don't understand it. Who cares? I'm not going to deal yeah, with it. Yeah. Too complicated. And too complicated. Yeah. And I appreciate that point of view as well, because it is, it is very complicated. And it's, mm -hmm. and, and all of this, all of these rules and directives and orders are all being layered on top of the fact that, um, again, we're all not with each other in the same way we've been with each other in the past, our friends, our family, we don't have the same social outlets. And we're all, you know, we're all living in the middle of a pan, of a crisis that we have never seen in a hundred years. I mean, the level of, of sort of anxiety and fear and, and um, concern that is just part of our daily lives now that I think we all just accept and don't even realize anymore is having an impact on us as well. Yeah. So we have to we have to live with all of that and then try to figure out a complex web of rules. I get it. You know, it's 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 difficult. We should break so we can hear from some of our underwriters. But before we do that, I just want to make sure Emily and, and Mike, is there any last minute things you want to add to this segment before we we break? Um, I just sort of want to continue to highlight the idea, which I think will echo again in the next segment. Um, about how communicating for a specific audience is so incredibly important if we want people to understand us. And so often sort of like government legal speak or political speak is so different from the language that community members can sort of understand process mm -hmm. and take things from. And we're, you know, I think so many of us are sort of caught up in our own linguistic circles um, and really, you know, the media plays a huge role in sort of reinterpreting that. Um, and we have to find other ways to reinterpret that. You know, we have a sign language interpreter at you know press conferences. Maybe we need like a plain language interpreter at press conferences. <laughs> I don't know. But um, really making sure that like you know the takeaways for people aren't lost in um, you know the aphorisms and the reassurances. 
Thank you for saying that, Emily. I I would echo that in saying, as I'm doing my work as, as a journalist, I find in this time of uncertainty how important it is to try to make things as tactile as possible um, and how hard that can be when there's so much that's still unknown. But that's really kind of what right. people need so they can kind of hold on to something. Mm-hmm. So, I think that's right. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Emily. And thank you, listeners. We will be right back with the Montpelier Happy Hour on WBEW LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. WBEWLP Brattleboro, your community radio station. I'm your host, Olga Peters, and if you're just joining us, I'm speaking with regular contributor Emily Kornheiser, as well as Commissioner of the Department of Financial Regulation, Mike Pichek. Welcome back to the show, folks. So, uh, Mike, I would like to start with you. I'm curious, what are some of the key metrics that your department has been following as we're reopening the state? What are some of the things you're looking at that could be the red flags that COVID is either go, hopefully going down but going, or going back up? Yeah, so there, you know, that's obviously a key, uh, a key sort of analysis and a key strategy as we reopen is to think to ourselves now, before we reopen, what are the things that are going to give us pause if we see you know, this number happen or that number happen or, or this trend occur. So we've gone through that exercise. We've, we've relied on our, the Department of Health to obviously uh, come up with many of these metrics, relied on our outside experts to inform that as well. Look to our state counterparts also, because other states are, are thinking about this uh, as well. And we've really landed on four key metrics uh, that we will be watching as we reopen uh, and, and how they trend over the next two months, let's call it. One is the number of people that show up into an emergency room or an hospital uh, or urgent care facility with COVID-like symptoms. So when we look back on the, on the pandemic here in Vermont, you could see a pretty clear uptick in people reporting um, to a hospital or urgent care facility with COVID-like symptoms. At the height, it became about 6% of visits that were um, to those hospitals or to the urgent care facilities. And it stayed right around that 5 or 6% you know, for a number of weeks until we started to get down from our peak. So that's an early warning sign for um, the medical community because folks are going to show up into a hospital before their test result comes back uh, and tells them that they're COVID positive, um, unless we get more rapid testing that can be done more quickly. But at this point, that's sort of going to be an early warning trigger that, you know, if we are seeing 4% of, of visits uh, to a hospital or an urgent care facility report COVID-like symptoms, and it's trending in that upward d- direction, you know, that's going to be an early warning sign uh, for us that maybe case growth is, is coming behind that. Um, So that's sort of the second metric is the case growth. What is the number of new confirmed cases that we're having in Vermont? And since we have a small state with a a small uh, population to begin with, uh, and we've been fortunate to have uh, a limited number of cases, you know, our growth rate is a little um, different than some other states. You know, we could have a situation where we have 20 cases and then a situation where we have five cases the next day. So we have to think about that 
not necessarily just in a daily growth average, but we want to be thinking about that in a sort of a three-day average, a seven-day average, even a 14-day average to get a sense of where we're trending as well. You can see in our case results just this week, you know, there's some variability. We'll have a day where we just have a few. We'll have a day where it might pop up to seven. Um, and again, all that kind of variability is normal, and we want to try to smooth that out and flatten it out to understand you know, are we, are we maintaining? Are we slightly increasing, slightly decreasing? So that growth rate is- Are you gonna reconcile that with the increased testing and increased contact tracing? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's a good question. The increased testing has the likelihood of increasing our numbers, right? Mm -hmm. So if we, and the reason it would, will do that is because, you know, even if we don't, even if the disease generally is trending down in Vermont, if we increase our testing, we're going to be picking up asymptomatic individuals and people with very mild symptoms that wouldn't have gotten a test in, in March and maybe even in uh, April as well. So we'll just be testing more people. We're going to just uncover more cases. So one of the things that you do to um, sort of uh, calibrate for that is this sort of third metric that we're looking at, which is the percentage of positive tests that come back. So if you test mm -hmm. 100 people, and you get 75 confirmed tests, that's really gonna give you some pause because 75% of your cases have come back positive. It really makes you think that you are not testing enough and you're not testing you know, enough, enough just generally, but also enough people that basically uh, there's a lot of disease out there that you have no idea about. If you test 100 people again and you come back with seven results instead of, uh, you know, instead of 75, and you know that that positive uh, percentage is you know, around 7%, then you can have some comfort that you're testing enough people and that the disease is under uh, sort of a containment strategy. Um, the World Health Organization, others have sort of used that benchmark of 10%. So if your confirmed positives are coming back under 10%, that's giving you both an indication that you're testing enough and that you have the virus under um, containment. When, again, when we look back at our own data, um, we've been under about 10%, you know, generally, but for some volatility for, again, close to 25, if not 30 days. Prior to those, prior to that timeline, you know, we did have days where we were, were testing and receiving, you know, 15, 18, 20% positives back uh, in our test results. So that gives you, again, a sense of how, even as we expand testing, how we'll use that metric to help us calibrate um, going forward. So anything um, below 8% for us in Vermont, that's not going to be a concern. But again, if we're trending up and get to 8% and get higher than that, that's going to be another one of those red flags for us, certainly. And then, you know, lastly, the fourth data point is really the ultimate data point, which is hospital capacity. So everything we sort of talked about, whether it's flu light or COVID-like symptoms or flu-like symptoms, whether it's the growth rate in the virus, whether it's the percentage of positive tests that come back, those are all kind of early warning signs building to how many people are going to need hospital care. And we want to make sure that the hospital care is available, obviously, when Vermonters need it, um, whether it's in a hospital bed, whether it's an ICU bed, whether it's a ventilator. So we have on the, on the capacity side, certainly built up our capacity. We have more ventilators now than we did uh, a number of months ago. We have facilities that are ready to be built out for surge capacity. And those um, are plans that don't have to be redrawn up. They're sort of there since we had to do this on the way up the curve. So on the capacity side, you know, there's some 
room for um, you know optimism. Uh, how many people will need those uh, facilities? That's the critical question. So we're using sort of a general guardrail that if we get to a 70% capacity, you know, if that's 70% of our ICU or 70% of our normal hospital capacity is is occupied, whether COVID or non-COVID related, um, that's going to be sort of a warning sign for us. And again, the reason that's a warning sign is because of that 14-day and then seven-day, that 21 total day sort of delay between when someone might be exposed and get the virus to when they might need hospital care. It's sort of like slamming on the brakes when you're on ice. You're going to slam on the brakes, but you're going to keep traveling for 21 days with the sort of trajectory that you were on, and then you're going to stop. So Have you need to build in. No. <laughs> I'm writing um, that one down, yes. <laughs> I, <laughs> save those. Um, this is perhaps a, I don't know, a naive question about, you know, the whole flattening the curve paradigm. But let's say we had 100 times the hospital capacity we have now. Would it be okay for 100 times more people to be getting infected? If we had 100 times the hospital capacity, would we not engage in any social distancing measures? Like yeah. It's a, where is, and yeah, what's an acceptable so, loss rate for a population? I mean, that's just- Well, it gets to that, it really right? gets to that, it gets to that question because- if Why am I not, saying loss rate instead of people dying, right? Like, I mean, the whole thing is just <laughs> well, dark. Want, yeah. yeah, it's too dark to put an actual label on it, I think is really part of the issue. But, I, but you're absolutely right that no matter if we have every hospital, every hospital resource that we need, there are still there are still going to be people um, that pass away from COVID-19. Um, the estimates in the United States now are about 2% for those without an underlying condition, but it's as high as 15% for those that do have an underlying condition. So um, it is very it is very severe and serious disease for, for folks with diabetes, with folks with heart conditions, with uh, suppressed immune systems, people that are in their 70s, even in their 60s, and, and people certainly older than the 70s as well. So there are people that are really at high risk. Part of the um, sort of reopening strategy is to have those folks continue to have heightened sort of physical distancing standards while others are going back to work to encourage them to stay home even when others are not when others are able to leave their house and that's really just to protect them against the fact that um, there's just a greater risk that even with all the appropriate medical care they might not make it um, through the virus. And my so, understanding is that those folks are still eligible for unemployment, even if their ask. business is open back up. That was sort of yeah, that's right. That we passed in actually in real life, um, yeah. out of committee. And so that I think is really I think people that detail might have gotten lost somewhere in the mix. And I think it's a really important detail. For sure, because you could imagine that those whether it's someone that's in their seventies and still is working, or some or needs to work, or whether it's someone in their 40s with an underlying medical condition and they have to choose between going back to work and and risking their life. I mean, it's really a tough, it's really a tough position. So congratulations on passing that. I, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> it all feels like just like shots in the dark right now. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm, I'm curious, uh, 
Mike, two questions. One, I, I hope is somewhat short, but you know, when you're dealing with small populations like Vermont, I hear this from folks who <clears throat> crunch numbers a lot, that the numbers can skew quickly one way or the other uh, really easily. So I'm wondering, um, did you have to build anything into the model to deal with that? Uh, but then I'm also wondering what has looking at these numbers taught us or taught you about uh, Vermont? I love yeah, sure. <laughs> so on the on the small numbers question, you know, um, you know, there's a whole industry now called big data, right? And and the whole point of big data is that there's a lot of information from a lot of different sources. And when you are able to build a lot of information from a lot of different sources, it can tell you almost anything, and in ways that you didn't anticipate it being able to tell you things. So when you have small numbers, the almost the opposite is true, right? You have to be worried that it's telling you a story that's not sort of the actual story. Um, so, you know, how do you, how do you guard against that? I think you, I think you guard against it by a trying to sort of not look at a particular data point or a particular day. You want to look at multiple data points. So for example, we just laid out four. If any one of those is sort of wildly off in a given day or a given week, you know, it's not going to give us a cause for concern. It's going to have to sort of be all four of those things sort of telling us, you know, danger ahead. Um, you also think about how do you um, build in, uh, you know, modeling, basically, you model your experience and build in sort of um, other examples from other states or other populations that sort of that we can sort of rely on. So, for example, our models might um, uh, dictate sort of the experience that China or Italy had, and then they sort of mimic that for Vermont. So we don't always have to rely on our own data when we're doing modeling. We can sort of rely on on um, a broader, you know, it's not real data. It's sort of, again, modeling and, and mathematical sort of actuarial assumptions. So you could make some question about that also. But we are able to sort of broaden out, um, you know, our, from our own experience. And then we always have to be mindful of basically what's our level of confidence. So there's usually a confidence band in, in sort of these kind, this kind of work. And, you know, if your confidence band is basically the entire spectrum, you know, if, if we say, you know, anywhere between a one person and, and 629,000 people are going to get the virus. You know, that's we have 100% confidence that that's right. But that's obviously not a very effective, um, you know, sort of measurement for us to plan against. So you you always have a degree of uncertainty, but you want to get that confidence to a place where we can say, you know, it's likely we're going to have, you know, a thousand people over the next three months get COVID-19. And we have, you know, 70% confidence in that. So it's it's sort of, Again, multiple data points relying on other states, other countries' experience and their and their models and their data, and sort of replicating that for Vermont. Um, it's thinking about our data in the aggregate, not any specific day. And I think it's also, um, again, when you're looking ahead, trying to keep the right perspective about how these are not definitive outcomes that we're that we're talking about or in the modeling, certainly, but also even in the data, we have to put it in perspective about, um, you know, what's the what's the outcome going to be in a week from now, two weeks from now, three weeks from now and not act too too rational, too quickly or too irrationally. Um, to put a really sort of more human face on, I think, the story you're telling is that, you know, um, in Wilmington, Dover area, we had one family where a lot of people got right. sick. 
you know, a few people passed away. And so this one family's experience changes the data for that whole community, changes the data for that whole county, but doesn't necessarily tell a much broader story about what sort of community infection rates look like. Mm. Yeah. Um, and so, and we see that same thing, you know, when we look at census data that we don't want to tell the story of this one small community because the variation that happens within a small um, population really can change the percentages wildly. Oh, for sure. Schools too, right? We have all those things that happen. Um, this is my momentary plug for everyone to please complete their census forms while we're talking about the census, because we want to be able to have enough data to get an accurate story about what's happening in Vermont and get all of the fabulous federal funding that we need to keep Vermont a vibrant, wonderful place. And now back away from my census plug. <laughs> um, thank you. Thank you, Emily. It's a good reminder. I, I admit I have not done my census yet. So I promise by next week, <laughs> I've done my census and my guilt will be so strong that before next week I will have done it, I'm sure. What's the what's the timeline? I should know myself, but do we, do we have uh, another... It got bumped actually. Um, there in-person census is actually restarting. They're gonna be dropping off paperwork door to door starting I think next week. Um, and then they're gonna run through the fall for the first time. Yeah, that's what, okay, great. Yeah. That doesn't um, mean you have, shouldn't have completed yours already though. Because <laughs> the more, the longer it takes, the more expensive it gets um, because they sort oh, yeah. of, you know, bump up the processes. Well, I think why I haven't done mine is for some reason I just had it in my head that I was gonna get it in the mail like in right. previous years. And so mm -hmm. I did You will make... eventually, actually. Oh, I will eventually. <laughs> yes, the longer you wait, you will get it in the mail. We'll try not to wait for eventually. Um, so Mike, going back to the numbers yeah. and away from my shame um, around the census, <laughs> <laughs> what have the numbers taught you about Vermont? Yeah, so, you know, uh, Vermont is really um, a resilient place in many ways. I mean, folks, um, we're coming out of this uh, from a health perspective better than many other communities across the country. I think Vermonters really did adhere to the social distancing protocols. Our mobility data tells us that people are continuing to stay home still, you know, in large parts. Of course, I'm sure your viewers and listeners will see folks that maybe aren't doing that as we talked about earlier, but generally Vermonters are compliant uh, with these social distancing measures so I think that tells a story about perhaps the Vermonters even prefer social distancing. <laughs> that might be right too. The introvert <laughs> me is kind of having a good time. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a level of resiliency there. There's a level of community there too, right? That there's sort of this, um, and we all know that we all recognize that growing up in Vermont, you couldn't do something, you know, in one context and not expect to have a ramification in another context. So you couldn't throw a fit at school and then not expect to see that person sitting next to you at church or something, right? In, in a small state, in a small town, I think there's that level of um, accountability and community that we're just sort of inherent in our DNA. So I think in some ways we just responded to that. You know, this was a call to action from the governor and and um, a call to action from our neighbors. And I think people really understood in Vermont that our individual action was going to determine our collective experience and and we've seen that be the case um you know it also tells us a story though not about vermonters but maybe about our systems and our state and and some of the issues that we've had sort of 
in the back burner that you know never really needed to be addressed but then the pandemic right. has really caused them to be addressed so think about um, our rural hospital hospitals and and sort of our health care system think about the Vermont State Colleges and the challenges that the Vermont State Colleges are facing particularly with the rural campuses you know think about even the way something as minor as the way we record our property records and our town clerk and, and the way that that's managed. Um, many other states didn't really get phased by that from a from a sort of a um, real estate transaction standpoint because everything's online and people that were doing title searches were in their offices doing them and transactions were closing and people were buying new homes and and here in Vermont, you know, that's not as you all know, that's not not the case. So there's there's things large and small that I think the pandemic is will cause us to confront over the next few months and over the next few years as well. So, oh, sorry, Emily, just quickly, and, and maybe okay. I said this to you, Emily, last show, I, I can't remember whose conversation it was, but I'm hoping one of the things that's going to come out of this experience is that um, because we have, we have done things like house so many homeless people in hotels right now, or uh, the Vermont Food Bank just announced the amount of dairy that was being donated uh, to them to help hungry Vermonters, but also help dairy farmers. I'm hoping we're collecting some of the costs of this because I'm wondering if we will get a new look at what it costs to fill in some of these cracks and find new ways of, of funding things. And maybe we will find that some things we thought were expensive to achieve maybe they're not as expensive if we're going at them from a slightly different angle. Yeah. And, and again, some things that we, something, some inefficiencies that maybe we just accepted in the past because we said, well, that's the way we've always done it. And, you know, it's sort of, I don't want to tackle that thorny issue right now. I think it's making us confront that so that we can ensure that our dollars are being spent in ways that are most impactful for people in Vermont, right? I think that's going to be part of our challenge as well as sort of maybe on the one hand, overcoming some of these assumptions that it's too expensive and sort of saying, well, what does it really cost and what does it really, you know, and can we afford it? But then also, you know, are there certain things about our um, state or even our state government, right, that we should be thinking about doing differently to be um, making sure we're the most efficient we can be for Vermonters and that their money can go to all of those things they want it to go to like higher education and, and helping the less fortunate and um, ensuring that all those programs that are critical across the state are well-funded. So I think, you know, I know um, Emily, the legislature has certainly will have its hands full over the months and the years to come. Mm -hmm. I think one, um, great example of a system that many more people have eyes on right now. And, um, has suffered from decades of underfunding and underinvestment, um, both sort of on the human scale as well as on the IT and financial scale. Um, and that we're really now all seeing the desperate need for where really government can shine or could shine is the Department of Labor. And um, the incredible challenges that people are experiencing trying to access unemployment insurance. And so I wanna start this off by saying, you know unprecedented levels of claims. Like a perfect system would be caught up in the incredible flood of claims and the incredible shift from, you know, 
historically low unemployment to historically high unemployment. Right. And then we had a system that had been underfunded for decades through multiple administrations and political parties and um, no one has ever thought it was sexy to spend millions of dollars on IT projects. Just like right. not a winning thing to campaign on. It might be now, <laughs> but it was not before. Um, and like, you know, huge political gaps in history over, you know, IT projects, certainly. So all of that, you know, we were actually just about to go out to bid on a new computer system for the Department of Labor, which, you know, in three years probably would have helped this. But what I've seen through, um, and so it would have been hard at any time, but what I wanna talk about is what could have made it easier to get through that difficulty. Um, and before we got on air, I said that, you know, I've always been really impressed with how well the Department of Financial Regulation functions, how em empowered the staff there are to solve problems, how um, happy customers are, even when they're being tightly regulated because of the respect that they receive from the folks that they're talking to. And so really just like curious to unpack lessons learned about like what makes bureaucracy work and what makes bureaucracy want to, you know, have people slam their heads against walls. So <laughs> um, yeah, curious, like, you know, insights that you've had. I've certainly had some of my own that I'll jump in with. Yeah. So, um, you know, I kind of think one of the big ones is communication. And um, I think it's a two-way street, the communication, I think, um, and we all can do a better job of communicating. So I'm sure folks in my department will listen to this and think, boy, he, he's, he should be taking his own medicine. But, um, you know, we all can do a better job of communicating, but you need to be um, able to communicate what's going on to your team and they need to sort of have a clear understanding of the game plan. So whether that's sort of the mission and the strategy of your department so that they can feel empowered to, you know, execute. Um, they also need to have, it also needs to be clear communication about, um, you know, what is expected of them and what authority and ability and, and power that they have to sort of resolve issues as well. And that's sort of, you know, sort of general sort of communication. But then like in a crisis like this, certainly, you know, you can't over communicate. So, you know, making sure that you're informing your team and your staff of, of everything that you're working on so that they can focus on their work. They don't focus on the crisis. You know, there's certain mm -hmm. elements of the team that has to focus on the crisis, but it's really critical for them to be focused on their work. And I think the more you communicate about what we're doing to solve the crisis, the more they can focus on their work and not be worried about that other um, thing. So I think that's important, but I just, like I just said, communication is really a two-way street. So you as a department, as a leader, you know, you have to be willing to have, to engage in the communication back up to you as well, mm -hmm. whether that's from a deputy or whether that's from a frontline staff person. And you, and it's not just, it's not, obviously we're all, we all have emails. They can just send us an email. Like we're all open to communication in that way, but we all have to be open to, um, taking time to appreciate what the person is saying and experiencing, and also take time to appreciate their perspective and and be open to changing our own minds when we realize that, oh, I had this perception that this program would be rolled out in this way and it would solve this problem. And then when the person that's executing it tells us, you know, this is actually the result, not this, you know, you need to appreciate that and take it into account and change your own perspective. There's so a think, lot of wisdom within an organization um, from the people who are working on the front lines of that organization. And there's also a lot of wisdom in the people who are experiencing that system, right? And oh, for sure. 
you know, mechanisms, I think the communication also goes sort of that next step out of the bureaucracy to the folks who are being served by the bureaucracy, um, being able to be communicated with in a way that they understand, um, which state government is terrible at, um, again, throughout multiple administrations, and then um, being able to actually hear feedback from those folks is really difficult. Hear it and digest it and be open to it. And even yeah. if it's and and people that are likely to give it to you are probably not people that are going to be quite pleasant when they give it to you. No. But you have to look <laughs> you have to look past <laughs> that and understand what they're saying, right? Mm -hmm. But you're absolutely right. I mean, if we were to if I'm if we were to design here at the Department of Financial Regulation a banking program, right? We know more about banking than probably the average Vermonter. We would know more about the intricacies of it, the lingo, the language. And and when we sort of put out the statement about how to how to use it, how to apply for it, how it would be effective. You know, most people say, what are they talking about? Right. Mm -hmm. So you're absolutely right. You need to think of how does an average person that's not expert or even not just expert, but maybe totally new subject matter to them. You know, how do you put yourself in their shoes? And um, and I think the only way you can do it is by refining your systems over time and taking their feedback into account. Mm -hmm. One thing I think that has always stressed me out as someone who's had to access state systems sometimes is I feel like big decisions are being made and yet I may not know how to speak the language of the person interpreting my information. And so I feel like right. any little mistake is going to get me tossed out and then I have mm -hmm. to start this complicated system over again. Well, and not just a feeling, that's a reality. That is a, okay, good. I'm glad it's not just in my yeah, head. No. <laughs> um, and so I wish we had a better way to, to again, as Emily said, collect people's experience but also um instead of like with say vermont health connect instead of denying whether or not you qualify to have like a more gentler gee this didn't fit our parameters but did you answer this correctly you know so there's a better kind of like yeah, follow-up system a colleague who i have a very different political bent from um but who <laughs> i um really enjoy speaking with was we were talking about the Department of Labor and the challenges. And um, he said, you know, the system is designed to minimize fraud, not to expedite payments. And what I've heard from constituents over and over again is that they're trying to fill out these forms that they've never filled out before that are fairly opaque. Um, they're terrified of answering a question wrong, just like you said, Olga. And then either they're thrown out um, because they misunderstood or they're placed in this category of fraud risk. And they're told that they're a fraud risk when in fact they are in a category of misunderstanding. Right. And so when we design sort of, you know, the more ways we could go back in and be designing the system so that they, you know, spoke the language of people who are filling them out, I think the the clearer it would be to really differentiate who is, you know, where is the disconnection and where is the actual. Um, I think that's right. I mean, so, you know, one thing we have done, and this is a un limited universe, but the one thing we've done at our department, you know, is engage in sort of stakeholder feedback. You know, we've put out surveys and just as recently as 18 months ago, if not a year ago, to our captive insurance industry, about 600 captive insurance companies asking them, you know, what is it that we do well in Vermont? What is it that we don't do so well? What is it that you want to see more of? What is it you want to see less of? What policies are uh, impeding your, you know, progress or impeding your, your changing your interest in being in Vermont versus another jurisdiction? And, and it, whenever you engage in those 
self-reflection sort of efforts, it tells you something. And again, you know, you have to be willing to change and, and listen to the feedback because um, we all, you know, we all want to be defensive and, and we all, and I think we want to be defensive because we all care so much. We all, so we much. all, yeah. And we're all saying, you know, no, I have my, I have my right. I have it, you know, I'm doing what I think is right and best, and this is the way to do it. And, but, um, but that can be true. And you could also not be having the right approach at the same time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so. I think, you know, people go into, to work for state government because they care about Vermonters. You certainly don't do it for like the money or glory. Um, and, but when I think about what process improvement looks like in bureaucracy, you know, you earlier was talking about sort of like minimizing the steps someone has to go through, right. minimizing the number of people someone needs to talk to, how much can be automated so people can actually like have an easeful way through. And then, um, which sort of, you know, some people call the call lean and, you know, the um, right. we're calling pivot for a while. Right. Um, and then one of my favorite exercises to do with a team is to use post-it notes, which I love more than most anything in the world. And I'm worried I'm going to run out of my stash before I'm up, you know, social distancing measures. I have so many. Yeah. I'll drop some in your mailbox. Thank you. <laughs> but I like lots of different colors and shapes, but it's to actually ask folks um, who deliver services to go through a process where they map out the experience from the person who's receiving services perspective um, with post-it notes. Like each time they need to have contact with someone, each step that needs to be taken, like every form that needs to be filled out, every new office they need to go to, like requires a brand new post-it note. So people can have like that visceral experience of like the step by step by step. Um, yeah. yeah. It is, and it's a visual exercise, but it's also sort of a physical exercise as well, because you're sort of having to sort of physically write these down, put them, and jot them out, and and sort of create that create that process um, that is maybe again in our heads, but we need to sort of put it down on paper and put it out in front of us and see where the bottlenecks are, where the weaknesses are, where the confusion is, and you know try to improve on that. Something else that both uh, Mike and, and Emily, you both touched on that just sort of will be my takeaway from, from the conversation is, you know, when you were talking, Mike, about creating a banking system and what it would mean for the average Vermonter. And then Emily, when you were talking about your conversation with your colleague, the system mm -hmm. was designed to prevent fraud. You know, I wonder if we need to get better at communicating to the people who are trying to use these systems, what our expectations are. Because if the person who's trying to access unemployment insurance has one expectation of why they're accessing this and what mm -hmm. it's supposed to do for them, meanwhile, whoever designed the system has a very different outcome in mind, you know, that's just eventually going to right. lead to loggerheads. Mm -hmm. And I think that gets to what you were saying, Mike, about the, um really being articulate about the mission and vision of an organization right i think that's right and 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 of course you know the mission has changed a little bit at dol and that probably creates the confusion as well because i mean it was designed for sort of fraud prevention or or ensuring that the right people are getting the right benefits and um and now it's sort of viewed as a um you know a safety it's always been a safety net but it's an expanded safety net whose intent is to sort of help get state money and federal money to people that need it as efficiently and quickly as possible, which is a very different mission than, you know, being a safety net for those who need it in these specific circumstances, mm -hmm. right? And, uh, and those specific circumstances involved um, 
judgments and and some involved um, you know uh, evaluations of people's circumstances. Did they quit or were they fired? You know, did they had they previously committed fraud on the system? Had you know? So all of these judgments that you know are part of the previous mission. You know, in some ways get tied up and confused as we try to get people relief and 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 not worry so much about the reason that they're seeking relief and such. Or, or the favorite one, did they quit because the um, employer wanted them to quit, but didn't want right. to actually fire them? Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. And like, you know, how, you know, sexual harassment and other workplace issues get tied up in that is intense. My, we talk about unemployment insurance um, at dinner a lot lately. Um, and <laughs> have you, have you, my, have you, how have the, how have you received a lot of constituent outreach on unemployment? I'm sure I'm assuming it's, um frustrating heartbreaking overwhelming like it's just really it's unbelievable and every every single legislator that i talk to has heard the same like 50 things that have gone wrong with the system and has heard them multiple times i haven't you know it's been a long time since i heard a new terrible story um but for each person you know the fear and frustration you know spending months because you know i guess it's weeks spending many many weeks which you know calling hundreds of times a day and not getting through, um, social security numbers not being recognized, just like li like things that are just, I mean, it must be horrifying. So there's, I mean, there's a good example though. I mean, the social security numbers not being recognized uh, as I understand. So we have, we have about 20 people at DFR at our department that are assisting with DOL um, during, they started about three weeks ago to help with the, you know, with some of the challenges that they were having. And they just told me this week that, you know, oftentimes many of the calls that they're getting are people who say, um, you know, my social security number wasn't recognized. But in reality, it's just that the system was so busy, they couldn't, the system couldn't recognize and process their social security number. It's not that their social security number isn't in the system. It's not that it's wrong in the system. It was just like overloaded. Ugh. So then they immediately so call, they pick up the phone and they mm -hmm. call because they're like, what Blood. is this all about? Which is mm -hmm. what I do. And you pick up the phone, you say, what's this all about? And then because the way that that system communicated, it didn't say, for example, system is overloaded at this time, the demand is high, please try again at, you know, after 7 p.m., you know, when demand's lower, you know, that could have avoided a phone call, but instead every single, probably 90% of those folks are picking up the phone and calling and saying, what is this all about? And, and it takes time to, to sort of explain And that they're calling hundreds of times. Yeah, right, right exactly. Yeah, yeah. So um, it's challenging. So I, the, um, at dinner, my son, asked more than once um, as we're sort of I'm explaining like the benefits and the layering and the extra $600 from the federal money and how that all works um, and the percentages and he's asked more than once why is it less than someone made when they were working mm. and like just can't quite get his head around that and I was like trying to, th I'm like, what is the logic of it? Cause like probably someone like needs that same amount of money. Their life is probably built around the exact extent of their paycheck. That's true for almost all of us. And I was like, well, I guess there's an assumption that like you would never go back to work um, or people won't look for work or people won't feel desperate enough to take the next step in their life if they are making their full paycheck on unemployment even though it's a short lived program, right? And that, um, that distrust of people, right, um, is really like built into the foundation of the system. Um, 
the desire for just like the little push towards desperation that's built into the foundation of the system. And so moving beyond that in a time when we desperately want economic stability is difficult. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And I'm sure you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, um, we've talked a lot about paid family leave up in Montpelier and, 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 and whether it's paid family leave or disability insurance, usually mm -hmm. the, the, usually the um, wage replacement is less than hundred percent. And it's for that exact reason that, you know, the incentive is to try to um, obviously take care of folks when they need it, but then making sure they don't overuse the benefit, right? So when they don't need it anymore, they go back to what they're what their circumstances were. So I'm sure that's the same logic in the unemployment circumstance. But again, the the paradigm that we're looking at this all through has changed in the mm -hmm. middle of a health and economic crisis. And I hope we carry this paradigm into the future because um, I think we've been in economic crisis in this state yeah. and in this country for a long time. For too long. Although yeah. you've been trying to jump in and I haven't. <laughs> well, unfortunately, I don't want to jump in, but oh, we but have we gone way over time. <laughs> so I should probably be a good host and just ask you both quickly, is there anything you wanted to add or wish we had touched on before we send you back into your evening? Mike, Emily? I'll just I'll just recall the last time we all got together um, was right before New Year's, I think, and and uh, we were on the cusp of 2020. And, and I know we were talking about New Year's plans and things of that nature. And I thought 2020 was gonna be a lot better than it's been turning out, I'll just say that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, doesn't, doesn't 2019, December 2019 feel like a whole other lifetime ago? Not yeah, a few months very ago. Much so. <laughs> very much so. Yeah. So I hope that now that we've come together and sort of this, you know, we're through the first quarter of the year that maybe, uh, you know, maybe the luck will change for the second half of, of 2020. I hope so. Me too. Thanks. Me too. Well, as always, listeners, thank you for tuning in here on WBEW LP Brattleboro, your community radio station, 107.7 FM. Emily, where can people find you? EmilyKornheiser.org, ekornheiser at ledge.state.vt.us if it's a constituent challenge, ekornheiser at gmail.com if it's a political question, fine line sometimes, I'll send you the right place if you won't go to the wrong one. Or you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, um, and every Saturday morning at 9 a.m. I'm hosting a Zoom Con community conversation with reps Tolino and Burke and folks can find that login information by contacting me any of the other ways I just mentioned. Fantastic. Great. And uh, Commissioner Pichak, any resources you want to steer Vermonters towards right now in this time of COVID? Yeah, for sure. So if they visit our website, dfr.vermont.gov, uh, Vermont spelled out, um, we have a COVID resource page uh, right on the middle of our website. It has information about um, all of the healthcare uh, and health insurance related uh, policies that we've implemented over the crisis, all the insurance and banking measures we've taken as well. And it also has all of our modeling that we've done to date, both the presentations and um, talks about the modeling partners we're working with and their interactive models that help inform our decision making. So I'd encourage people to visit that both for the policy and, and to get a sense of the modeling as well. Fantastic. Thank you. Emily Kornheiser, Mike Pichak, thank you for joining us today. Have a great weekend, thank you. everyone.